turning your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, uh, verses 7 through 12. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Again, um, it's a great joy to have our guest preacher today, uh, Mr. Eddie Pack. He's going to come and uh, bring uh, God's word to us and preach to us today. Um, but just a few things about Eddie. It's um, Eddie has been just a faithful member of our church, and um, it's been a pleasure to know him and his family. And, uh, and his service to our youth in Axis over the last years, um, my son testifies and has great joy in um, Eddie leading his his uh, group and and getting to know the Pack family that way, and uh, so I can testify of that as well. But even as elders, even as we go have gone through this building process, um, Eddie has been invaluable uh, in the process and overseeing and uh, the finances and and different aspects of the building process and ensuring things and doing some of the work even of, of a general contractor and making sure things stayed on a good timeline for us. And so we're very appreciative of Eddie uh, doing that. But Eddie also is a graduate of uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. And, um, and so we're just so happy that he can use his giftings and giftedness uh, to preach to us and bring us God's word today. So if you'd welcome Eddie Pack as he comes to preach to us today. Is this okay? Okay, so, yeah, so I wanted to just sort of get that out of the way so I wouldn't stumble my family or my church family with what often appears like gross hypocrisy. So I'm clinging to that hope of righteousness, which makes me really glad to be here with you this morning to worship the Lord with you all, my wife Sharon and I. And our four kids uh, have been here at Wellspring for almost eight years now. We do a lot of sports. The kids do a lot of sports, I should say. I do a lot of driving. When, um, okay, I got to go back here. Is this better? Okay. Um, so, yeah, a lot of driving. <laughs> uh, when Pastor Sam asked me to preach today, I... I, I I had to do a check to see if the rust buildup even allowed for that. So, but um, then I remembered a professor at seminary who said, uh, "You, you always need to be ready to preach, pray, or die." And so, what could I say, right? Uh, 
but I don't take this task lightly, so if you would, please pray with me now. Lord, um, as your word does its living and active work, I ask that this message would work its way into every crevice of our soul to judge the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And that is not something that any methods or means by man can conjure up, but only your spirit can do that work. And we are desperately dependent upon that this morning. So to that extent, where it does not mirror your intentions and stay true to your scriptures, close our ears. Please let us not be moved in either our exaltation or our fear of man, but instead let us be moved in our love towards the Lord Jesus. It is to that end we ask that he would be magnified and moved to act this morning. Amen. Our text as we continue on in Galatians is verse 7 through 12 in chapter 5. The thing that usually sticks out about Galatians is its intense rhetoric and its intense rebuke. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements, the elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Of all the biblical letters Paul wrote to the churches, Galatians is the only one where he does not commend or express thanks for them. But whether you are a deserter or the faithful, the fool or the wise, the lover of worthless principles or the hater of worthless principles, the slave or the free, the message of this letter is for you. Written about a year after his first missionary journey to Galatia, it deals really with only one singular issue that came up after Paul preached the gospel of Jesus Christ there. As the people responded in faith, um, mostly Gentiles, non-Jews, the spirit was received, churches were formed, all was well, until after Paul left the area, a group of supposed Jewish believers came through and they were persuading and teaching the Gentile believers that, that they, like all Jewish males, need to be circumcised in order to be saved and counted among the people of God. So this different gospel, as Paul referred to it, was probably preached very persuasively and convincingly because the Galatians were accepting or on the verge of accepting it. And Paul's letter to the Galatians is his response to the situation. 
So our section for today um, is the second half, actually, of a single exhortation, starting from verse 1. An, an exhortation is like an urgent, emphatic communication. Like, wait a second, where do you think you're going? Or, I'm warning you, if you don't put away that phone, something bad's going to happen. All parents and children alike should understand this type of communication very well. So the, the first part, one through six, is, is very, it's a logical, theological kind of argument. It's threaded nicely with strong points. The freedom of Christ, the freedom Christ, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. From Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And then the second part, which is our part, well, it's, it's kind of like a personal, almost rambling. Like, there's aren't, like there aren't any real conjunctions. The commentaries say, a rambling string of pointed remarks, a diatribe, like snorts of indignation and scathing sarcasm. I always like hearing Eric when he reads from Galatians because he does that really well. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? His persuasion is not from him who calls you. Little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would just emasculate themselves. Our message today is based on the second part, but we'll reference the first part as well. When the fire alarm sounds at 2 a.m. in the morning and smoke is pouring through the house, would hope your first instinct would be to grab your loved ones and get out of the house and not think twice about going back in as you huddle around your loved ones watching the flames rise up you see your child all of a sudden dart across the lawn, running back towards the house, the burning house. Oh, there's a stuffy that they forgot to grab, a, a state championship trophy that can't be replaced, an, an album of memories. Without, without a second thought, you cry out with the most guttural, snarling warning to leave it there. 
take it back. And you run after them and you grab them by the scruff of their PJs and you march them back to the rest of the family. Paul's exhortation is that guttural, snarling warning for the eternal soul. If you would turn in your Bibles to Acts 15, 1 through 6, if you have it. If not, I think it's up here. But some men came down from Judea who were teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. This happened shortly after Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians and gives a good indication of the problem he was dealing with, the fire, if you will. These believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees had come to the churches in Galatia who were mostly Gentiles that had responded in faith to the gospel of Paul preached when he was there during his first missionary journey. That gospel message was anyone can be freed from enslavement to sin and the consequences of death and hell by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And now it was being altered to include the law, in particular the act of circumcision. Paul called what these teachers were doing as keeping the Galatian church from obeying the truth. That was verse 7. That is, believing the true gospel that he had preached earlier to them. That their different gospel, as he called it in chapter 1, was not from God. That what they were doing with their inclusion of circumcision was infecting the true gospel, like leaven permeating through dough, right? It was no small matter, as apparently the Galatians had already started accepting it, even though he trusted that they would see the error of their ways eventually. Paul had names for these guys who were doing this. He calls them distorters of the gospel, false brothers, circumcision party, bewitchers, those who rely on works of the law, those who want to make a good showing in the flesh, boasters in your flesh. He's obviously not very keen on them. And in fact, he said, anyone who preaches a different gospel than the one he preached, including himself, let them be damned. In fact, he says it twice, let them be damned. Whoever they are, he says, they will be judged. And then in verse 12, in like climactic sarcasm and exasperation, he wishes those guys who are infecting the minds of the church 
the circumcision party would just go all the way with the circumcision and emasculate themselves. Paul knows his law. He was a Pharisee. Deuteronomy 23.1 says, anyone whose male organ is cut off cannot enter the assembly of God. He's like, that'll get rid of him. False teachers come in various forms. I don't imagine that these guys were like walking under cover of darkness with masks on trying to dupe people. They were supposedly fellow believers in Christ. But what distinguished them was their message, their different gospel, which made Paul turn into like mama bear. If you've ever had like a parent teacher conference or like a coach and a talk with kind of that one kid's parents, right? where you had to get some things straight with what you thought was right. There's probably some shaking and some biting of the tongue, some confessing to God afterwards, but you might get a sense, small sense of what Paul's feeling. So we have a sense of the problem. We have a sense of who's behind it. Let's keep digging. The issue is Circumcision, you're saying? It's a foreskin? Removal of foreskin from male penis? Well, didn't Paul say neither circumcision or uncircumcision matters at all? So it leads us to our next question. Circumcision, like I said, lest there be any confusion, was the removal of the foreskin from the male penis. I mean, that's, that's a medical procedure. Simply speaking though, for Jews, it had a direct correlation to their identity as the covenant people of God. There were primarily two things that defined what it meant to be Jewish. One is their ethnic lineage to one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And two, it was circumcision. Adherence to the law, yes, but that was actually secondary. When Paul describes his Jewishness, in Philippians, I think, it's, it's circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. Circumcision was what identified an Israelite as belonging to the promised offspring of Abraham, which can trace, you know, we can trace that back starting with the promise that was made by God to Abraham, Abram at the time, that he was going to bless him with a lot of descendants and through them, the entire world would be blessed. If you go to Genesis 15, three through six, I'm gonna read. And Abram, and Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household, who would be like the head caretaker of his house, will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. 
This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And here's the important part. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. It's very important, that line, in understanding how Paul sees circumcision. And then God would go on to make an unconditional covenant with Abraham. He would swear by himself, God himself, that he would keep it. Because Abraham had declared, was had been declared righteous by God for his belief, for his faith. Now, fast forward a number of years, and we're at Genesis 17, 9 through 14. And God said to Abraham, it's Abraham now, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. See, circumcision was the sign that was received by Abraham as a seal of the righteousness that God gave him when he believed before. That is, when he had faith before in God's promise that he would bless him with descendants. The important thing to see is that it was a symbol of something that had happened on the inside. God declared Abraham was righteous, that is, he was accepted because of his belief. His belief in what? In God, that he would do what he promised to Abraham. You can see that whole argument in Romans 4. So circumcision itself was not the actual righteousness. It was, it was just the symbol of an inward reality. The reality of righteousness that came when Abram believed, that is, when he had faith. The inward reality is what united Abraham to God. But to the Jews now, the ethnic offspring of Abraham, the promised descendants that God made to Abram, circumcision was just an outward symbol, and that's be that became what united them to God. Regardless of whether the inward reality was there or not. So as we come back to our situation with the Galatians 
And as we read from Acts 15, the question has come up basically. Under what conditions were Gentiles now to be considered members of the community of God? Well, the Jewish believers maintained that circumcision is required. And Paul is saying, with the coming of Christ, the connection to God is as it has always been since Abraham. Through faith, Abraham believed God and his promises, right? And it was counted to him as righteousness. We believe God's son and his promises, and it is counted to us as righteousness. So why do I care then about something that doesn't really apply to me? Nobody's telling us to get circumcised. I get it. Paul was really upset a long time ago. But what does that have to do with us today? Remember the exhortation from Paul. It begins, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery that Paul is telling the Gentile Galatians not to submit to again, it was their acceptance of that, of circumcision. And it had everything to do with how they lived now as free in Christ. And that has everything to do with us. So let's look at that. So make no mistake here, the issue for Paul in his letter was circumcision. But it's not like, if I get circumcised, God won't be happy. Or if I don't get circumcised, God will be mad. Remember, Paul was saying, neither circumcision or uncircumcision, it means anything. It's not that. The issue was about what they were making circumcision out to be, which was that an outward symbol, in this case the act, the cutting off of the foreskin, is what gave them an inward reality of righteousness. Instead of inward, instead of the inward reality of righteousness coming by way of God's declaration because of faith, Abraham believed God and God declared him righteousness. So they didn't have the real deal. They were making the real deal like a sticker or like a tattoo. Like, you want to be saved into God's people? Put this sticker on. Except in this case, it's get circumcised. See, a sticker doesn't mean anything. But you're saying that by wearing it, it means everything. That you're righteous, that you can stand before holy God because of a sticker. And this is why circumcision is relevant to us because we are all just as capable of doing that. Maybe not with circumcision, but with something else when you fill in the blank. In order to be included in the people of God, in, 
to be accepted by God, I must blank. If you fill in the blank, if I fill in the blank with anything other than believe, have faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, period. Paul says you are not free. You are actually enslaved. Let me try to explain further. I think we're all familiar with how a merit-based system works. I mean, we are fully immersed in it in our culture. I do something defined as good, like win a game, get an A, close a deal, preach a sermon. For the Galatians, it was get circumcised. And then if I do it, I get a reward, right? A trophy, entrance to Harvard, monetary bonus, ask to preach again. For the Galatians, it was inclusion into the people of God. When Paul says, if you accept circumcision, he's saying, you are saying that there is something that you can do, a work of the law, drinking crackers and juice, getting dunked in water, that gets you righteousness. In that case, in that case Christ has no benefit or value to you. Why? Because you can get it on your own. He has offered his righteousness to us through the work he did in his death on the cross. When we believe that by faith, he gives us his righteousness. It's not earned, it's imputed, it's given. But we say, no, 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 I got it. I'm good. And when we say that, what are we doing? We're refusing grace. Paul said that you have fallen from grace. Also, when we say, no, no, I got it, I can do it, do we actually realize exactly how much we are saying that we can do? Paul says it's the entire law, the whole law, it's like we're fighting to pay the bill with God, right? And you snatch that bill away, right? Ah, I'll get this, feeling smug. And then you'll look at the total, and it says a trillion dollars. No tip included. That's the whole law. That's what the whole law is. Something we can never do. In fact, it was never meant for us to be able to do. It was meant for us to realize that we can't and that we need someone else to pick up the tab. We need a gracious savior. We need someone who can. But the unredeemed and the redeemed alike so easily say, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. Not a quitter. I'm not a failure. I'll never stop trying. I can do it. See, 
I'm enslaved to the notion that I can and that I have something to bring to the table. And I keep trying harder and harder and harder to build up that righteousness bank somehow. And when it's time to measure all the accumulated righteousness, right, I go to the scale and it will always be under what's requ required. And then time's up. Too late, no time to accumulate anymore. Let me try again with another example. True to form to what I just said, I won't give up, right? I will try harder. So as I confessed, I am a recovering legalist. Not proud of that fact, but let me use an example from my own life. Take any such law, okay? Um, God doesn't like your anger and what it produces. I'm not feeling so great for whatever reason. My kids are acting up. Again. Now, acting up can be defined very narrowly or broadly. That, too, can be steeped in legalism, right? How we define that. But let's say they're not getting along. Well, this time, the straw breaks the last one, the one that breaks the camel's back. And I go off with a verbal lashing. And they scurry away back to their rooms, and, and then I feel awful. And then I think about what I or they need to do to prevent that from happening again. I should apologize in case I screw them up mentally. Ah, what's the point? By now, I just look like a hypocrite. Or on the flip side, I'm calm. And I deliver the perfect Bible verse to which shuts them up to the truth. They can't say one thing. You see what I just did there? I just did what Jesus would do, right? That's, that's great parenting. I should write a book. And there it goes invariably. It goes back and forth from those two. Rinse, wash, repeat. See, legalism lives in the land of the law where we are stuck on a treadmill in a maddening cycle of self-effort. It's a wearisome yoke, a yoke of slavery. It's fueled by flesh. It needs a new heart, a spirit-fueled heart, one that only God gives, where against such there is no law. The cross is both a wonder and an offense, right? The offense of the cross is that the enslaved can do nothing about their condition. 
Their only hope is rescue. There is nothing, not one single thing I can do to make myself just a tiny bit more righteous before God. And I can never measure up to a perfect standard of righteousness. And therefore, I am condemned to destruction. I am helpless. That's the offense. No one wants to believe that. No, no one who, who thinks they can wants to believe that. That's the cross. That's the offense of the cross. But the great wonder, the great power of the cross is that I look, as I look to it, I am shown someone who is righteous enough. And there he hung, condemned to destruction for me in my place. His name is Jesus Christ, God's sinless, righteous son. And his promise to me is freedom from sin's curse, freedom from the demands of the law, freedom with a new heart to love. And like Abraham believed in God and his faith was counted as righteousness, so too do I believe. And that faith alone now counts me righteous as well. That is the freedom for which Christ has set us free. If we should turn back and run towards the burning house and submit again to a yoke of slavery, Paul's answer, Paul's exhortation, cut loose, run free again to the cross by faith. It's the only way. Let's pray. Our Father, what can we say when we look upon the cross of Christ? With great sorrow, we look and we say, why? Why did, why did your sinless son have to die? And perhaps, if we're honest, maybe some of that sorrow is why couldn't I have done something? But at the same time, we look upon Christ and we see great love. Great love that we have no framework or model for in and of ourselves, And that washes over our sorrow. the feeling, the sense, the reality of being clean, of being righteous, is overwhelming. What other response could we have 
than love, than belief, than obedience. There is no boast before that. We have nothing. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this that he knows you and understands you, Lord. For you exercise loving kindness and justice and righteousness in the earth. In those things you delight. And as we look to the cross, Lord, that's what we see. Where is our boast? I pray, Lord, if there is someone who has not made that break from slavery, from the endless cycle, that they would see Christ glorious on the cross and believe with faith and throw themselves at the grace that's offered there. For us have, who continuously go back to that burning house, Lord, may we too see the cross in the same way. Run back to it. For that reason, Lord, we love you. And we praise you. We are here today. In Christ's name, amen.